Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This episode is brought to you by squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on the show, Pentax adds video and HDR, lighting in space, and an interview with Mike Seymour from FXPHD, right here on This Week in Photography, number 91. Hey, everyone. We're back, and uh, I know I don't sound like... Frederick, uh, but um, that's because it's Alex, and uh, I am taking over. Fred is out of town today. Uh, he is um, is uh, dealing with some family issues, and so what we're gonna I'm uh, taking over, and I'm joined here with the uh, pretty much the usual crew here. Steve in New York. Hey, Steve. Hey, Alex. How you doing? Ron in Seattle. Yes, indeed. Oh, I got it right. <laughs> and uh, Aaron in Virginia. Hello. I don't know exactly where in Virginia, though. I always, I always throw it out there, and then I, I'm wrong. Under, a, under a cherry blossom tree, probably somewhere, right? <laughs> mm, not quite, but Sweetbriar, Virginia, is actually the name of it. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, we want to, uh, of course, we want to thank our sponsors. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com/twip. Also, the, the, this is also brought to you by Squarespace, squarespace.com. It's a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial or 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip and uh, use the offer code uh, TWIP. So we've got uh, – so the big news, big news is uh, Pentax has released a new camera or announced a new camera. I don't think it's actually – has it actually – is it actually shipping? I think it says I think it's formally announced. Live. July. It is formally announced, which means the that rumors it, turned into reality. All right, so this was this has been kicking around a little bit, and uh, so this is the K seven DLSR. Now, of course, it's got video because we've already said that uh, you know we've we've set the edict that <laughs> no SLR, no new SLR will be released without video, and uh, and they followed our edict, and uh, so it ha- we have. 1280 by 720 and kind of an odd format, uh, 1536 by 1024. Uh, I guess it's the 4 by 3 in some kind of weird reality. And uh, both are at 30 frames a second. We're kind of bummed that we don't have 24. Uh, but it controls the aperture. So what do you guys think of, uh, of this new little camera? It looks pretty cool to me. You know, I, I love the fact that all of these, and I think this is sort of a necessity, all of the sort of... I hate to call them B-list manufacturers, but you know, Nikon and, and Canon certainly dominate the field, and so anybody that's not you know, one of those two really has to be stepping up their game, and which I think is great because it drives everybody forward. And, and you, you do that by by coming out with features that aren't available, or coming up with unique cameras that that really sort of hit a lot of different uh, feature sets. And, and this one certainly has it. There's a whole bunch of stuff on this camera that is certainly at least interesting. Uh, some things in, in the specs I don't even understand, like what does the four-channel output mean? But um, there's there's a lot of interesting things in here, and I, I think the biggest thing, of course, is the high dynamic range for me. 
HDR. You got, you, got, you, you got to love Pentax. I mean, they're they're like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, you know, ever since the Spotmatic days, the the K1000. I mean, they've had you know they've had a presence. They've had a presence in the history of photography in the recent yeah. history, and uh, they're always coming out. I think a lot of us learned how to shoot on an K1000. I know. Really, I did. that was that was my first SLR. Was uh, was a Pentax, and you know, it, it treated me quite well. It's always been. You know, uh, a a good price conscious decision that had uh, and and you know good quality camera with good glass too. They make good lenses. Yeah. The glass was always really good. Uh, there was a time when I I had uh, medium format Pentax uh, cameras. They were always a good deal, and you weren't compromising on quality because the glass was always always so good. So you know, it's it's not surprising. Although these days, I mean, we're in a tough economy. And it's nice to see them come out with a camera uh, like this. And as Ron said, I think we're going to see a lot more of this high dynamic range in camera stuff going on. But but that uh, for me is is something that we we haven't seen very often. We haven't seen it in a DSLR yet, so it's a first. Well, and it's something that's interesting. I think that this is a first pass. I would not say like what we saw with Nikon and Canon trying video. Uh, this I wouldn't say that they they stuck the landing <laughs> with the yeah. uh, with the HDR. Christian Block definitely had some some no. interesting words you, about the about the ahead. HDR. You're, you're, you're always the uh, Russian judge, eh, Alex. I mean, no yeah, Russian. yeah. I'm like ah, uh, you know, nine point three. So <laughs> us, they are not going correctly with the leg. Um, so the the issue that you have here is that, of course, number one is it it's it's three exposures, which is fine. Um, uh, but it is also, uh, uh, it, it saves out as JPEG. Is that correct, Aaron? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's a great range. It does three shots, uh, covers 17 EVs a range, which is, you know, pretty drastic really for a single shot coming out of a camera through the HDR method that it uses. Um, and what's interesting too, is that it tone maps in the camera, which really does kind of take it to another level. It's not just that you're doing three exposures that you can work with to create it. You're going to get the tone mapped HDR out of the camera when you're done. However, you're not getting the 32-bit original, essentially raw HDR image. What you're getting is the resulting JPEG. So it's a JPEG that comes out the end. So it covers a nice range, but it's it's giving you the end product, not the pieces. Yeah, and that's that's certainly the, the yeah, that's definitely the disappointing part, I think, for most of us here that you know, HDR is still a fairly high-end tool. Uh, and yeah, you could make the argument that this is kind of de- democratizing it and bringing it down, so you don't have to do the post-processing work, which is great. And, you know, and you would want it to do uh, a JPEG, but just like you want to have the option to shoot uh, RAW or JPEG, you really, I mean, even right. more so for an HDR file, you really want to have the equivalent of a RAW file. You want to have something that is keeping all of this extra information that it shoots, uh, ideally, you know, in with some of the combination work that it does in camera. But that lets you take and do some post-processing on it, and I can understand let me, let me, why. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Let me let me just uh, play devil's advocate in that. You know, I think I agree with you know everything that was just said. But the reality is that uh, you know, I mean, look, this is an incredible range you're getting in in one frame that we've never seen before, thanks to the HDR technology. But in practical application, I mean, we'll have to see what it does. But I suspect if your final outcome is to make a beautiful print, a large print that this almost 15 megapixel sensor will allow you, I mean, let's just see what you can get. Uh, as much as, yes, you want to be able to control it as, as much as you can as professionals, as advanced amateurs, but at the same time, um, if it really works and your prints are going to be such that you know they're fantastic, and if your prints look good, chances are anything else you do with these uh, images are going to be great. 
We're just giving it the usual, you know, never happy photo nerd kind of. <laughs> you guys are never satisfied. <laughs> no, but I mean, there are there are decisions being made. Now, tone mapping is 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 not a uh, it's not an objective process, right? There are decisions right. that you make uh, when you tone map a high dynamic range image to get a look out of it. You are deciding, okay, I want these shadows to be really black, to be barely black. You know, what's the mm-hmm. contrast looking like? And so, you know, it's effectively just like anything else. Um, with the JPEG, it's baking some stuff in there for you. It's making some decisions, and, and you, you could you could make that same argument, Steve, with you know the the argument of shooting jaw, raw versus JPEG generally, right? I mean, it's baking some stuff in. There's a color correction. There's no absolutely, but you know the one th- the one thing I was going to just add to that is, and it's true. I mean, for those of us that want to kind of you know push the the boundaries and and sort of create their own unique fingerprint to the images that we make um, it, when you put on sort of like an all-encompassing filter for example it's going to look the same no matter who took it in terms of the the final processing so from that perspective it, it does kind of make all the images that are processed by this camera uh, kind of look similar well and, and I think that and one of the things that you know we're not going to see probably with this camera but probably could be upgraded with a uh, when we're talking about JPEG uh, and being able to upgrade uh, the firmware and so on and so forth, is possibly down the road, either with this camera or future cameras that are shooting this way. I understand the the reason, one of the reasons not to record a, uh, the HDR format or into, you know, into that type of thing. It's very, very large. Um, you know, it would fill up your, your memory uh, in the camera pretty quickly, and it would also slow down the write speeds, and it would, there's a lot of th- reasons why they might want to do this. Uh, the but the other side of this is that you know we have JPEG uh, XR you know somewhere around the corner you know this is kind of moving through the uh, joint photographic experts group the JPEG group um, is this new format that has been developed it used to be HD photo um, that was developed by Microsoft actually but they um, it looks very promising that this is going to be something that we're going to see as part of the official, you know, really going to become part of JPEG. Now, if that happens, the XR is going to give us a lot of that dynamic range, the ability to go back and do some of that adjustment to it. It's not, you know, it's not the same as the HDR, but really you're not giving up very much at that point. And so you could save to a JPEG and still have a lot of dynamic range to work with. My other curiosity, too, kind of tying into some of what Ron was saying a minute ago, is a lot of the debate a lot of people have in the HDR world is creating images that have a high dynamic range and are realistic and creating images that are highly surrealistic, you know, kind of an, as an artistic approach. I mean, you got to admit, a lot of HDRs you see do not, they look beautiful in a lot of ways and they're a fascinating piece of art, but they don't necessarily represent reality. Well, well I think that there's that a big regard, difference. So I think the other thing we have to distinguish that we're not distinguishing very well is that there is a difference between HDR and tone mapping. Right, right. So, right. That, so, what is this camera going to produce? I mean, what what this does is tone it's, mapping? It says HDR, yeah. but what it's really doing is tone mapping. Is, is, that, right. is that right, Ron? It's 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 capturing HD. You know, they're, they're not they're not sort of either or. You know, you you capture an HDR image. It just means you capture a wide dynamic range from sure. the original scene, but then presenting it in a fashion. You know, it's just like developing, right? It's presenting it in a fashion that uh, that you find pleasing or interesting, and and so yeah, tone mapping is really just the choice of. You know, what is this brightest area mapped to whenever you make right. your final image? You're, you're, you're compressing, basically compressing that, that image back down. You're, I'm just going to say, you're making choices for, you know, how, how realistic that looks or not. If you're boosting the shadows or if you're really, you know, having something that ends up with massively saturated colors and that sort of thing. I mean, that's a, that's a decision you make when you're tone mapping. But tone mapping sure. is, a, is a whole spectrum of everything from trying to make it look as real as possible to trying to make it look as vibrant as possible. Now, you were saying Aaron? Yeah, the, the time I spend wiggling dozens of sliders around in Photomatix Pro is the difference between whether I end up with an image that 
really looks like the scene because I, I shot a scene with very high contrast and it looks more like what I saw in the eye or whether in that process I go, oh, wow, that's kind of, ooh, you know, this, this is artistically interesting. I may produce two, you know, two different tone maps out of the source images in that, one being very surrealistic and, you know, artistic and one being very representative of reality. Yeah. With, with uh, the popularity of HDR, how long do you think it's going to be, guys, before we see a dedicated, serious HDR camera? come out by one of the manufacturers. Well, I'd love to see it. I don't know if we, I think it's going to be quite some time before we see a dedicated one, but I think that we're definitely going to see this HDR mode, like seeing video, uh, I think we're going to definitely see this HDR mode finding its way into more and more still cameras, and probably eventually we're going to see it find its way into video cameras. Uh, but I think that, yeah, what do you say, Ron? Well, I, I mean, you know, it depends on your definition of HDR, right? All, all that is really is capturing a bigger dynamic range. And so, you know, if you're shooting raw, you're effectively shooting HDR. It's just only an extra stop or two. And, and to get more than that, then we use this bracketing trick that's either done out of the camera or in camera to get a wider dynamic range. So, I mean, every camera manufacturer is theoretically driving towards more high dynamic range capabilities just by making their sensor capable of capturing a bigger dynamic range well, from the outset. And one of the things, there's another, the other pass at this uh, HDR has been something that Fuji's been working on, which is, it shoots it, does the same thing where it saves it out as a JPEG. Uh, and they call it EXR, which is um, not a good name because it's already used in the visual effects <laughs> community, but uh, they call it the EXR. And what they do is they, they've actually, the sensor in the chip, so it's actually one photo. And there's, there is some advantages to that. You won't get as much ghosting. Um, but what happens is, is there's a small sensor and a large sensor uh, for every photo site. And that smaller sensor, of course, is less sensitive. And um, so it gets, it gets less light. And so they're getting basically two exposures that they're able to combine. I think that that's, that's a really interesting approach to the problem, which is that we're, what if we have sensors that are all of different variations? And, and give us, a, once again, give us a lower or you know, less pixels. Yeah, you're, you're, you, know. you have to. If you're going to do that, you've, you've got to find the space to put them on the. But I'm, I'm happy. Give me an eight eight megapixel image Great. rather than I a twenty four megapixel image. Totally agree. And get and get three exposures. What I'd love to see is is something that's that's kind of this mixture of what Foveon does, um, you know, and and what a bear pattern does, where you have essentially Foveon sensors, and each instead of trying to capture three different colors, which is red, green, and blue stacked on top of each other, which is what a Foveon does, it captures three different exposures. Um, and then each one of those is still doing what a, you put those into a bare pattern. So you have basically what you have with a CMOS, um, but you also get the multiple exposures. You could theoretically get a very wide range uh, on a single chip. So when you pull the trigger once, it's actually, you know, pulling all that information out um, in one in one shot. And what's interesting about that is that at that point, you could move that into, um, you know, video cameras, you know. So uh, you know, who knows if that will ever happen, but I can dream. No, I, I think it will. I mean, it, it's really just a race between can you make individual sensors uh, more sensitive, able to get a wider range? Can you do that faster than you can build these chipsets that have side-by-side -side sensors that capture the the bigger range? Right. And um, yeah, I don't. You know, technology is going to determine which one wins that race. And net net is, you know, if you have a dense enough sensor, either one is going to be give you pretty good images in both cases. Right. I, the one thing I'm really curious about with this Pentax and, and any of these. Uh, cameras that do that sort of capture three images in sequence and then automatically tries to blend them together is, you know, it's, it's great if you're on a tripod looking at a, a mountain scene uh, and nothing moves, but it's, it's, it'd be interesting to me to see how they handle um, things that move slightly. You know, if you try and use this to take a picture of a, of a person in the studio or something where there's a slight little bit of movement, right. you know, there's going to have to be some kind of decision made in the camera about 
you know, where, which are you taking? How are you blending those? Are uh, you going to end up with blurred images? Does it try to j pick just one if there's a discrepancy? There's a lot of clever logic that could be built in there to try and come up with the best one. So th those are the tests I'm looking forward to seeing with this camera is not, not a, a piece of scenery, but something where something is moving slightly. Or even if it is a piece of scenery where you know, maybe the, the leaves are moving in the breeze, you know, what, what results do you get? Right. Absolutely. Now, we've got more news uh, on the way. We're going to move on. We have more news uh, coming up here. We want to take it just a second to uh, thank again our, uh, our, our, one of our sponsors for uh, today's show, Audible.com, which, of course, is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. There's over 50,000 titles to choose from um, that you can download and play back anywhere. I know that my, uh, <laughs> my parents have, uh, have really gotten into uh, Audible.com, and so um, they, they got rid of whatever they were using before as soon as they got an iPod and and off they went. Now we've got a pick, just in case you're looking uh, to give this a shot. I think Aaron's got a pick for us. Uh, Aaron, can you uh, fill us in? Certainly. Um, the book that I'm currently listening to lately, my picks have been ones that I'm I'm in the midst of. Um, you know, when we're recording the show, so I am in the second half right now of a book by Tom Rob Smith called Child Forty Four. Mm -hmm. And I had picked it up a while back and uh, just gotten around to listening to it. And I just write book at the right time, I guess. I'm, I'm really, really into it and thoroughly enjoying it. It's uh, set uh, essentially in um, – it kind of boils down. It's not for the faint of heart. I will tell you that. It's not really a kid's book. I, will, <laughs> I can assure you that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it uh, is set in the kind of the heart of Stalin, Soviet Russia mm -hmm. um, at the time and boils down to essentially being kind of a uh, serial killer mystery um, wrapped in the politics, you know, of the era and so on. It's a really fascinating combination of elements in the book. It's it's a very dark book in a lot of ways, um, but extremely well read. Thoroughly enjoying the book. And uh, anybody who may have been into, you know, Gorky Park or you know, some of the Arcady Renko uh, type books, uh, the tone is going to be somewhat like that, but mm -hmm. um, really, really vivid book. So Great. thoroughly enjoy it. Highly recommend it. Fantastic. Stalin, Stalin, Stalin was a guy who used to, um, before Photoshop, remove people from photographs and <laughs> right now, yeah, you know, exactly. for propaganda purposes. So. Yeah, exactly. He's, he, he was the original Photoshopper. But <laughs> it, it, he would not only remove people from photos, but it was often because those people had been removed from the face of the earth as right. well. Right, right. Exactly. He really, uh, yeah, it was a little, little different there. So now the, um, uh, whether, you know, whether you're into that or whether you're into history or even into, uh, there's just a lot of events, speeches, all kinds of other stuff that you can download at audible.com. Definitely check it out. Visit audiblepodcast.com dot com slash twip make sure to go to slash twip because it makes us look cool so audiblepodcast.com slash twip and you can get a free audiobook if you haven't done this before you can go up there it's free no questions asked uh, you can download this book or another book so check it out audiblepodcast.com slash twip now on to the news and uh, what we have here is the panasonic launches a crazy fast uh, sdhc memory card so this is a class 10. Aaron, can you give us a little information on this? Um, class 10, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with it myself, other than just the, the latest fast. news to come out, because none of my cameras use anything but uh, CF cards at the moment. But uh, it is super fast is the main thing. We're talking about 22 megabytes a second uh, yeah. read speeds off of these cards. It'll, and, it'll uh, process the picture before you actually take it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's on that there before fast. you press the shutter. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think it's it, it's important when you look at uh, a lot of times the speed of these cards uh, when the camera can take advantage of it. Uh, one of the big things is that that allows um, for a f more frames. So when you're fi when you're holding down the trigger and letting it just fire away, uh, a lot of times you know being able to write to it faster. It's got a certain amount of buffer, but if it can't clear that buffer, it has to stop you. And so when you get these faster ones, obviously it's going to make a a big difference. 
I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll throw it out there. When you're downloading your stuff, you know, with a FireWire reader or USB reader, will the speed of the card have any any uh, function in how fast it's going to absolutely upload, download? absolutely well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it's 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 the read write, and so it's it, it really is um, makes a huge difference. Uh, in, in fact, it'll make more of a difference uh, about the size of the or the speed of the card, oftentimes, than whether you're using a USB one or USB two connection. Uh, you know, low. You can get the that's part. Of, that's one of the big reasons you pay a lot of money for the higher end cards, is because they're going to obviously you're going to be able to write faster to them, but also you're going to be able to pull them off onto wherever you're going uh, a little bit faster as well. Okay, well you sh- you sh- I, I, guess I, I guess I should have known that. So can, can we, when we edit this, can we put Ron's voice in asking that question? <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Ron? Uh, I was just, I, I should make the point that putting a faster card in your camera is not going to guarantee that you can shoot faster, however. Right. There true. are limits to what your camera can do, and you, you kind of have to look at them, you know, do the math on what you're the speed of your camera and the buffer on the camera and how fast it can write images into the buffer and pull stuff out of the buffer because it may very well be that you would see absolutely no speed difference putting this card in your camera depending on the camera specs. But you almost always on, see, uh, you almost always see a speed difference when you're offloading the, the files. Right. When sure. you have a faster. But that's, that's an expensive there. premium. You know, yeah. that's, yeah. that's the, that you're, you're paying a lot for these really high-end cards. But I'm impatient. Yeah, well, you two know, points if, to make there too. When you when you when you pull the pictures off your card, if you're in a big hurry to turn that card around in the field, pull them off by copying them at the operating system level. You know, like at your desktop, pull them off that way where it's just a file copy. Because if you're pulling them off into your application, such as Lightroom or Aperture, in some cases, the overhead of processing the images as they pull them in yeah. may stomp out a little bit of your you know of your benefit. And, and one other quick thing I'll mention too, if you're if you're wondering about your camera's ability to write to the card, keep an eye on Rob Galbraith's site with his his excellent CF card and I think they may start doing SD cards if they're not already database. It will tell you a lot of times which camera models can read at what speeds and from what cards and what generations. Perfect. Yeah. So, de- so definitely check that out. Uh, also in the news, uh, there is a new Pocket Wizard, the Mini TT1 and the Flex TT5 um, is uh, clear for release in Canada. This is good for you, Steve. Yeah, well, we just got electricity, so it takes a little bit of extra time to sort of pass all these <laughs> electric stuff that are going in. But actually, um, I guess it was the wireless laws and, and all the rules in, in effect that took a little longer. But uh, I know that there are a lot of Canadian photographers, particularly the, the Canon shooters, who this first version is going to be for, um, are just chomping at the bit to, to get these things. They're like, now I don't have to drive to uh, drive south, you know, to and Detroit. smuggle them in. And smuggle them exactly. in. Exactly. Smuggle them in. It was very dangerous and very complicated. I, you know, I don't know if anyone on the border would really know whether they were looking at a mini TT1 or not. Do, do you no, think they're really trained the, for that? <laughs> yeah, but it's a, like an electronic device. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's not something, you know, when you open your camera bag these days at airport security and you've got all these wires and cards and, and hard drives, I mean, you know, it just doesn't look good. <laughs> that's true that's true uh so also uh in the news uh, waterproof housing for the the 5d mark ii 1080p under the sea uh so um it, this is supposed to uh keep keep your uh your nice little dslr safe for up to 60 meters that's a that's a long way down it's pretty good about 180 feet or more yeah, it's 180 feet. That means that you'll get to shoot for like 10 minutes, and then you'll be going up for hours, right? I mean, this is I mean, that's, that's <laughs> getting the bends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So now it's it, it costs about the same as the camera body itself, which actually isn't that bad, to be honest. I mean, three thousand dollars for a 
a uh, waterproof casing is actually pretty a pretty good price. Uh, a lot of times these things run seven to ten thousand. So I'm, I'm, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, uh, how that works. Hopefully, some of our listeners will try it out. Uh, I don't, I don't do a lot of scuba myself. So the uh, uh, is that a Canon product or is that a third party? Third party, I believe. Is it okay? Yeah, it is. Oh yeah, looking at it now. Well, that's that's quite a beast. <laughs> so we'll put we'll make sure to put a link for all of this uh, in the show notes, and so definitely uh, check those out. Um, have you guys? Have you guys? I'm just curious. Have you guys? Has anyone done any real underwater photography? You know, I haven't. No, I don't I mean, swim. Than, you know, I, I could. Water. I sink. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's a short little conversation, but I just wondered. <laughs> I, I I have played with a, uh, a waterproof point and shoot in, in a fish tank. <laughs> I've I've Does uh, that count. I scuba dived uh, in my pond. Does that count? Okay. Well, that's that's something. That's, something. <laughs> <laughs> that's about that's about as close as I've ever gotten to a shoot. I mean, I I, I had a harp, harpoon, but um, but that was in, in the pond. It's pretty it was pretty fun. Those bass okay. never knew what hit them. So, um, but that's that's about that's about as close to uh, scuba diving with a camera that I've gotten. So um, hopefully some someday into the future. Uh, now this is the final week. Is this right, Aaron? For the uh, yes. for personal personal space. space. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely go to the, that's where you want to go to the Flickr discussion and critique groups, uh, and uh, you can go up there and uh, post your images. Uh, if you go to twiplog.com, you can find a link uh, back to uh, to where all these uh, locations are, and you'll see some of the photos uh, are actually yeah. in uh, in Twiplog. It's not Twiplog because I just I hate the word blog. Anyway, so it's twiplog.com, and uh, you can uh, you can see some of those photos there. So definitely uh, check that out. We don't have a new poll. Uh, for uh, for this week right now. So uh, we will uh, move on, and we've got an uh, interview with Mike Seymour, and I'm kind of jealous that the interview went without me. Um, so Mike's going to be talking um, about shooting for uh, Red Dwarf. Is that correct, Aaron? Um, actually, Ron did this interview this week. Ron, can you give us a little prep? It is about studio. I mean, I think the intro is uh, at the beginning of the interview, too, but yes, uh, the Red Dwarf TV series uh Mike talks about using the DSLR on set uh, for visual effects and just generally on set shooting. Great. So uh, here you go. Hey, everybody. Ron here, and I am talking with a good friend of mine, Mike Seymour. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good, man. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, definitely. Mike is uh, with FX PhD and FX Guide, uh, which are a couple of websites that are sort of visual effects focused. But specifically what we're going to be talking about today is the work that he did as the visual effects supervisor on the television show Red Dwarf. And I guess the first thing we should probably do, for those of us aren't familiar with it, is to tell people what Red Dwarf is. Sure. So Red Dwarf was a show that was very successful in uh, England. I mean, really successful. It was huge following. Uh, it started out as basically just like a sitcom in space. And... Um, and for an English audience, it just hit all the buttons. It was very, very funny, and it went uh, for eight series. They stopped making it, and uh, just recently they decided to do a special, like a mini-series. And uh, I knew the director, and I was contacted mainly actually about the red camera initially. And then uh, from there, it just spread out. As I said, I knew the director, and I became the visual effects supervisor and uh, second unit director. Very fun. And uh, we will probably talk about what those terms are. And for for anybody that's sort of wondering right now if they they wandered into the wrong podcast, uh, this is not going to be uh, a, a visual effects 
podcast per se, but the reason why I wanted to get Mike on here is uh, he had posted some interesting thoughts on how basically critical the use of his uh, digital camera was to his, his entire workflow. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today is, is digital photography in the context of making a, you know, making a, a movie or making a, a television show. Uh, particularly relating to visual effects, so I, you know, first thing is is uh, let's just a little more context. What uh, the role of a visual effects supervisor, and even you know, and we should sort of make the distinction, I guess, between visual effects and special effects. For those that that aren't familiar with uh, the terms, special effects is uh, what we call practical effects sometimes as well. It's the things that are done on set that uh, are pretty much just captured in camera. So if you want to set up an explosion. Uh, that's something that the special effects supervisor would do, but visual effects is the uh, is really where most of this is happening these days, and it's the thing that includes on set work, but also then the post production work that is almost exclusively done in the in the computer today. Uh, and your role then was the visual effects supervisor on the show, so you should probably tell us a little bit about what all that entails. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you may have heard even Alex talking about when he was doing. Uh, I think he did visual effects supervision or something in Tokyo. Um, so basically my job on set is to be the guy that helps creatively solve problems with the director on how we pull off a shot. You know, the script reads, um, diving bell goes into giant water tank inside spaceship, inside space. And everyone looks at me and goes, so uh, how are we going to do that one, Mike? <laughs> and we might say, you know, part of that's going to be live action. Part of it's going to be 3D. Um, but the thing that that got to you and I talking about this today is that uh, somebody actually asked me what was my most useful gadget on set and they expected me to say, I don't know, a rangefinder or a, some kind of electronic measuring device or even maybe some iPhone app that was super cool. And sure, we had those things, but the number one useful tool I had on set as a supervisor was my stills camera. And uh, just in more ways than I can possibly imagine over the weeks that we were shooting both on location and in studios at Shepparton and, you know, second unit away from main unit, the stills camera um, just became an invaluable tool for a number of things, not just uh, getting elements or textures, as you might imagine. Yeah, no, I think it was. it's, it's going to be really interesting to kind of talk about all the different areas that you tend to do this. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the goal of, of the effects supervisor on set is to try to get as much information as possible so that when you sit down in the, with the computer later on, uh, you have all the tools that you need to kind of recreate the scene, to to accurately understand what was in the scene, uh, so that anything you're adding to the scene fits in there properly. It's it's all about kind of the the trick here is you're you're putting something into a scene that wasn't originally there, uh, and to get it to look correct, you need to take into account everything that was in the scene. You know, not just the objects, but of course the lighting uh, and that sort of thing as well. So being able to just understand the the set is probably the first part of what you did. Just sort of uh, understanding the staging of, of where you're going to be in the environment, right? Yeah, I mean, literally, if you were to tick the boxes that you guys chat about um, on TWIP, you know, you talk about HDRs, panoramas, bracketing, you talk about, um, you know, setting your camera to aperture and to get a particular look, you know, going full manual, shooting raw, like so many of these things that you talk about, you could almost say that in every case that I can think of off the top of my head, all of that came into play when we were shooting for visual effects because, as you say, the first job uh, first and foremost, actually, even before we get to on set, is just to work out what you're going to do. And there, during pre-production, you use the stills camera to take tons of shots of stuff, even empty studios, to kind of work out angles of things that, and where you might build things and where the camera, the real camera, would be 
uh, when it's shooting. And there's a really interesting uh, merging there of technologies because we were shooting with the RED camera. And I guess you saw, I don't know, I think of, you've talked about this one, that was on your blog. But, you know, recently there was a still shoot of uh, Megan Fox for the cover of a, a magazine and actually shot that on a, a RED camera to lift out stills to use it. And, of course, we were shooting with the RED camera to just film the action, the, to go to television. Um, but it was still electronic uh, capture. And so the electronic capture of that camera, which I'm kind of very uh, familiar with, having got one of the first ones in the world, and, of course, my digital stills um, all kind of merged into one. Yeah, and, you know, it's a really good point that the uh, we've talked about a lot on the show that there is certainly a convergence going on where so much of the technology between a camera that can shoot a still and can shoot moving footage uh, is the same. And so it's not surprising that you see, you're seeing the technology grow together, but also just from a workflow, the fact that you can you know, sort of understand that the lens you put on this digital camera, what the equivalency is going to be with the film camera or the movie camera that you're shooting with, even if it is digital, uh, and understand that, use that for framing shots and, and getting a sense of where do I want to stand when I shoot this particular shot or where do we need to set up the camera to, to cover the scene properly. Um, you know, there's basic pre-production work that you do and even, I guess, pre-visualization is the, mm -hmm. the proper term for really sitting down and I mean, I assume that you kind of went through and took some photos of the set at different stages uh, and came back and, and then talked about how the shot was going to evolve from that prior to the real shot being taken. Yeah, so for example, um, there were some shots that were actually the basis, the only live action, if you like, the only real thing that was in the shot was stills that we took. Um, for example, from the London Eye, looking over at the London uh, Houses of Parliament. And there were other shots where... We went to the empty soundstage at Shepparton weeks before we actually went in to film for real. And I would get up on the gantry up in the um, the rafters effectively and start photographing the empty space. And from there, we were like, okay, well, if we put the red camera back here and built a set over there, then we'd have a really good angle of that bit over there. <laughs> and then we could uh, use that in the show to have a shot from high and wide inside a cargo bay or whatever it was. And so even before we determined you know, where the sets were going to be. We were literally mocking stuff up with a stills camera. And uh, I like to think that the better you get at digital cinematography with, say, a RED, and the better you get with a stills camera, that each informs the other. And I found myself, for example, only shooting with prime lenses on my stills camera, which I didn't sort of wake up to until I was about halfway through the shoot. And I realized that's because I only, and I really love shooting with, with prime lenses on the RED, and I just started to no, never use a zoom anymore and so you just find this kind of crossover in terms of style and, and, and operation yeah we should talk a little bit about the the gear you had so i mean what you you what what kind of drove you to using primes was it purely the image quality or were there other considerations for that well we were shooting on the red camera with obviously incredibly good uh, lenses which meant they were very fast and so you would typically get a very uh, good f-stop and so you know great uh, shallow depth of field so one of the things that drove me to wanting to use stills on my stills camera is that, of course, you wouldn't use flash photography on a film set. You wouldn't use it because, A, it introduces an element that makes somebody think that a light bulb's gone, uh, like suddenly a flash going off is, is normally an indicator to the lighting guys that something just broke. Um, but secondly, it's quite intrusive into a set that's otherwise concentrating on getting a performance. So you'd only be shooting without a flash. So you're not going to be shooting where you're controlling the light so much as you're using the available light, though that available light sometimes is magnificent because it's been lit by the uh, the director of photography. So I wanted to both 
uh, have a fast lens and I wanted to take advantage of the cinematic qualities that he'd already lit for. This is Andy Martin, the DOP. Because, you know, quite frankly, and this is a, a good tip, if you ever want to get a great shot on set, just uh, walk up with your stills camera and put it right beside where the real camera is and you'll find that everyone set the lights to make that look like a really good shot. And later on when you're showing your friends, oh, my God, you've what a great shot. <laughs> um, yeah, and exactly. I mean, that, that's really kind of the point of, uh, of having your director of photography being... Uh, who he is is that he's lighting the scene for you know what looks what looks pleasing, what tells a story sometimes even, and you certainly would you know you want to take advantage of that being on set, being able to do that. So I can certainly understand trying to have the same kind of lens as well as uh, as well as the lighting that you've got going on in there. Yeah, and the uh, other where's there? Go well, ahead. The other really key thing is that we were trying to capture textures, obviously. So let's imagine for a second, as we had, we've got a section of a corridor in a spaceship. And they don't build, obviously, the whole corridor. We, we end up building a digital set extension and we, we make a digital version of it. So I want to capture the wall. And, and to everybody else in the world, this is the most boring photograph in the world, right? I want no actors in shot. I want no clever anything. I do want the lighting that this wall will be in in the show because I want mine to look the same. So I make sure that it's got the lighting that the DOP is going to use. But then I try and get the blandest straight on front shot I possibly can. So um, the, the lens of choice for that kind of work is a, uh, for me, as I shoot on Canon, uh, is a Canon 20mm. There's a 20mm uh, f2.8 lens that's just the kind of VFX lens of choice for all the people that I know that shoot um, with, say, like the 5D. And the reason is that it produces a very, very clean image in terms of its uh, drop-off in vignetting. So it doesn't have um, a loss of quality out to the edges it's pretty much without much lens distortion and of course it's quite wide so you single shot you can get a whole wall in um, or a doorway or whatever it is that you're trying to copy and, and lift textures off and then and, and i'm assuming that that you know having a wide lens is is key because you're in the midst of a set so you can't really take a whole lot of steps backwards either to get the the full no, the full image that you need. You're exactly right. If you're standing in the hallway and you need to get the wall in the hallway, and you're, we're not talking about a nice artistic shot from the end looking down, which might be the shot you know you want to show your your friends. Now, what you want is the very bland shot of the wall, almost sort of straight on and uh, without any perspective in it, so you can lift out the textures and use them in the computer. And and look, you know this as and, well and we as should, anyone. It's yeah. Sorry, let me work. let me let me just uh, for people that don't quite uh, get the terminology of using textures in the computer, this is literally taking this this image and sort of mapping it into the the 3D CGI. So if you want to recreate this corridor, uh, you start with the real the real image and you just sort of place it on this uh, virtual version of the of the corridor, this model you build in the computer, uh, and then that that ends up being rendered out and, and presented as uh, as you know as a as an extension to the set, for instance. Yes, and for those of you that are also listening, let me just say Ron is terribly uh, modest because he literally wrote the textbook on this stuff. So <laughs> me explaining it to Ron is about the stupidest thing in the world. But anyway, I wrote a book on it. Oh, okay, the sure. book. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, you, you just be modest, well, my you. friend. Um, All right, I yeah. shall. But yeah, so obviously, so, so, yeah. yeah, that's good. And then in the same hallway, I'm going to want to take an HDR because that maybe got me, firstly, the, the texture of the wall. In other words, the lighting of the wall at that instant in time that we're going to be filming. So that's, that's one tick. My second tick is I need to get a lighting plan. And if I do a full HDR... Um, in other words, when I say a full HDR, it's not just an HDR from one camera position, but we do a 360 degree. So by shooting with the 5D with the full sensor, I put on a 8mm um, uh, Sigma lens and I get 180 degrees top and bottom, left and right. Um, 
then I do that and do a circular uh, pivot on a special HDR rig. And now we have uh, the ability to tell the computer through the HDR exactly where every light was and the contribution of every light so that if I was to put a digital character, in our case, maybe a, what was a robot, a scutter mm -hmm. in that position, then the computer lighting can match the real lighting because the computer can read all the information out of the HDR and match it so that not only do I have the wall with the right texture, but the character in it is lit now by digital lights that match the lights on set. So that's, that's, that's tick number two in the three things that I'm trying to pull off on set. And then the third one I want to do is I want to actually have a model of what the hallway looked like because no hallway is just a straight box. And so the third thing we do is I normally stick on a 50mm lens, again another prime, and I will then take at least four, but normally about six shots of that from different vantage points and then take that into a program called Image Modeler. And in Image Modeler, I can digitally reconstruct the entire set. And if I have one measurement, like one single, you know, this shelf or this doorway was a, a meter and a half high or three feet across, then once I digitally reconstruct it uh, from, the, uh, from these four or, or six photos, I will get every single measurement between any two points in three dimensions in that set. So I would like, basically, we call it shoot and spray, <laughs> but it's, you'd go in and you sort of photograph in every conceivable angle, and then you'd take the four best of those into Image Modeler and do a digital reconstruction of the set. And that would give you now not only the lighting, the textures, but actually the geometry or the physical locality of every wall, every prop, everything in the scene. Right. And that's really the bottom line is that you want to try and effectively capture everything you can about the set so that you can later recreate it and either recreate it from the sense of you know putting putting the set together if you needed to create the, the entire scene out of it but also the sense of recreating the lighting for any of the the CG characters like you said I mean if you a lot of times it's the kind of thing you'll see a movie and you know a character is obviously pasted in just doesn't feel like it fits into the scene and it's oftentimes very hard to say this is why it's uh, it doesn't feel right? It just sort of doesn't feel right, and a lot of times it's just specifically because the lighting is uh, is just not quite working. So uh, let's uh, we're going to break this into two pieces now. So let's go ahead and uh, take a break here, and then we'll pick up again in uh, the next episode. And there we have it. We'll uh, we'll get this up within the next uh, week or two, uh, the second okay. half of this. So keep your eye out. Uh, if for you just that listen interview. to that, and only in in our tingling for the rest of the story we will provide that for you excellent <laughs> uh and uh and we want to just take another moment here to uh thank uh, our other sponsor squarespace um this is the uh, squarespace is actually the home when you're, you're going to squarespace anytime you go to twiplog.com that's actually what we built it in and of course squarespace is just a great way to build a host and manage your website it's an easy to use interface um you can it's optimized for both beginners like me and CSS experts like Aaron, and uh, and hundreds of there's hundreds of design templates to choose from. But of course, you can customize them, which is exactly what we did. Uh, you know, I just uh, I can't say more about how much you know I enjoy using Squarespace. We're moving almost everything that we're doing over to it right now. So it's not just a sponsor; uh, it is our our primary online provider. Or you know, we're, we have people uh, working on um, Pixelcore.tv. Uh, we're moving some of the uh, some of our other websites over. It's just you know it's just so much easier. It's so great to have the content, the person creating the content, able to move things around. Well, sometimes that's good. Sometimes um, I drive 
I would give a lot of kudos to the guys behind Squarespace as well. They've been a fantastic group to work with. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, every time we have any kind of issue, uh, you know, the the uh, the response is very very quick. Uh, if you want to try a free trial, and I highly suggest trying it. If you're looking at thinking about putting up your own blog and you just can't figure out how you you know you, how am I, I going to deal with the server and what am I going to do and how is it going to put together? Just go up to squarespace.com/twip. Um, that and uh, you don't need a credit card. You don't, uh, you know, to build your own website, you can just give it a shot. Now, if you want to have it have your own URL like we do, uh, then you need to pick it up, but you can get 10% off if you use the offer code TWIP. So uh, go to squarespace.com slash twip and uh, sign up and just try it. I mean, it is, it's fun. It's fun. And, uh, and, and I, I really enjoy it. So definitely check that out. Um, and uh, now we, uh, we have the picks of the week. Aaron, can you kick us off? Um, my pick this week is uh, going to be kind of general. Uh, it's uh, tilt shift lenses. Um, I've been talking for a long time about wanting to spend some time with a tilt shift lens and get the hang of it. And uh, I needed to rent a lens for um, for two weeks worth of event work last weekend and this coming weekend. And I went ahead and grabbed the tilt shift uh, lens in that same order. And I have to tell you, it has been it's so much fun. <laughs> um, just to clarify a little bit, a tilt shift lens is a very unique beast. I mean, mechanically speaking, this is the strangest lens I've ever put my hands on. Uh, it rotates, it twists, it bends. Um, you know, it's got all these little knobs and dials on it for shifting 11 millimeters left and right and up and down and so on and so forth. Um, the glass in it, this is a, a Canon 45 millimeter tilt shift that I happen to rent. The glass in it is superb. It is one of the sharpest lenses I've ever worked with, to say the least. Um, but the main purpose, a lot of times tilt shift lenses are used for architectural photography because you, you notice when you're standing on the ground and you shoot a tall building you you get that effect of the building narrowing you know uh, the converging lines into the distance a tilt shift lens can help you overcome that one of the other sides to a tilt shift lens though is it creates some extremely strange uh, depth of field effects allowing you to essentially control where the depth of field uh, takes place at, at odd angles, distance front to back, so on and so forth. So one of the side effects of a tilt-shift lens is, when used properly, will make just about any scene you're looking at look like it's a miniature or a diorama or a model. It's just the, the most bizarre effect. And it and to me, I find it captivating. Um, I've seen some uh, a lot of still photography, but also... Um, I had mentioned on the show back some weeks ago, uh, Keith Laudit on video had done these just fantastic series of uh, time-lapse videos set to music that were done in tilt-shift that just totally captured my imagination. That's when I wanted to, to give the lens a try. So I've been having fun with it. I'm, I'm still kind of getting the hang of the lens. I've got some examples that really look neat and some that are less so. So I'm going to put a few more hours on that lens this weekend, and next week I'll put some samples and some discussion about it up on Twitblog. Hey, Aaron, can I ask you a quick yeah. question? Um, sure. I have a, a friend who's a, a really fine wedding photographer, uh, up in BC, Rick Collins, and he uses his 45 millimeter tilt shift lens for portraits of the couple, and he uses it all the time. And the results I are fantastic. Have mm -hmm. you tried and played with uh, the idea of photographing people with it? Um, I did a little bit this week, and I would like to do a little more this weekend because, uh, again, I, I ran this lens along with a wide angle lens I needed for some event work last weekend and this weekend. So I will be around a lot of people uh, this weekend with some opportunities and kind of the downtime. Uh, to do more candid personal photography, and I'm I'm really wanting to use the tilt shift lens in those parts where I'm you know I'm not doing setup shots. Yeah, so uh, when I'm going to give that a me, When he showed me some of the portraits, uh, it got me interested too because uh, you can get some really really 
beautiful, uh, very sort of flattering results if that's the kind of photography. Absolutely. You're doing. Is he doing a lot with very shallow depth of field uh, for Absol- close ups and things Absolutely. like that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he'll he'll take and put you know the band of focus just where the Bingo. bride and groom are, even when they're not necessarily close to the camera. And it's right. a it's a very effective uh, technique. I'll mention too that the the effect I've found what enhances that miniature effect um, appears to be if you're at a good distance from your subjects, you're elevated above the subjects, and you have you know layers of uh, you know of depth front to back. For instance, some of the shots that I've done that were taken from a second floor balcony out over a square with some buildings and people in it have a very intense miniature look to them. Um, but others shot from the ground in a more traditional format, even with the tilt shift set. To its most extreme offsets, um, you know, still look more traditional. So uh, I'm learning in the process not only how to manipulate the lens on all these different axes, you know, when you're using it, but how to apply the effects where you want them um, and how to enhance that effect. Uh, one key too is shoot with you know the, with the widest aperture you can. This is a 2.8 lens, so you really need that 2.8 aperture if you really want to enhance the you know those miniature or diorama type effects. Yeah, okay. just one last thing I'll throw in there in my. Uh, another guy that's doing fantastic work with uh, the tilt shift lens is, is my, my buddy Vince Laforé. If you go mm-hmm. to his site, Laforé Visuals, you'll see he does a lot of aerial photography, but uh, some of the stuff he's done, and he's used it for major sporting events, for example, where he'll capture real um, uh, uh, significant moments in a sports match with that lens and the combination mm-hmm. of this miniaturization of it, <laughs> it, it really does, especially if you see the thing big. Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite extraordinary. It's fun. You got to have some skill with a tilt shift to do that. And I'll tell you what. The other thing that I am itching to do is as soon as I get my hands on my 5D Mark II, I want to shoot video with this thing. 1080p video with this lens it could just be fascinating all yeah. by itself. So. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So tilt shift lenses in general. Uh, Steve, do you have a? Uh, um, I a do pick have a pick us? of the week. It's not uh, you know it's not overly exciting, but. But uh, no, not to take anything away from it. It's it's kind of like a camera baggy kind of pick, and you know, I pe- regular listeners to the show know that I do have a bit of a problem, you know, with camera bags. <laughs> I I think most of us out we there all do. do. We all and, do. You're always like, oh, I'll get another bag. I know. Well, you know, you guys can relate to this. So I'm I'm standing in line at Adorama, and Adorama, uh. they're they're smart people there, and you know, sort of like at the checkout line where they have little chocolate bars and so on. Yeah, in, in well, a camera like, shop, that's bags. Exactly. So they have, you know, I'm passing the bags and I see this think tank. They call it, it's not a great name, the Skin Chimp Cage Pop Down. How's that for a whole lot of sound? But I was actually doing, speaking of weddings, and that's why I was sort of uh, li- listening to Aaron very intently on that 45 millimeter tilt shift. But I was doing a wedding and I, I saw this thing, and it's really just kind of a belt accessory that clips to your belt or I guess they've got a modular belt that you can buy but I just use my regular belt but um, this thing folds flat easily transportable transportable you can um, uh, you can hold an actual camera body with a lens in it or flash or whatever it just was one of those things that you know as I'm waiting in line and I'm opening the compartments and I'm trying it on and I'm asking people how I look with it I, I I just ended up uh, picking it up and 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 no regrets. So now it's the 158th camera bag type <laughs> thing that I have in my collection. So, so. 
Does this make my butt look big? One of your questions. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, my problem is see now. Uh, one of the speaker gifts for many conferences that I speak at is a camera bag, and so I just I've been slowly acquiring all these camera bags, and I don't think they understand that. You know, I come with the maximum amount of stuff that I can do on carry on. <laughs> you know, to get there, and then they give me another bag, and then and that always means I'm checking on the way home. And uh, but uh, but uh, you know, I've been slowly collecting these, and this one, and so but this one looks very tempting yeah and it's got it's got a little um, rain cover and it's it's got even it's got sort of a a, a noise control you know how velcro sometimes you you yep. pull it apart and it sounds like something exploded well it, it even you know they they're thinking of everything so it's uh Fantastic. it's a pretty 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 cool company with a lot of innovative products so anyway that was my pick of the week great ron so I, anybody that follows me on Twitter has probably uh, seen me point to this website before, but um, it's definitely worth calling out. It's someplace I visit constantly. Um, it's the Big Picture blog. Uh, the Boston Globe newspapers uh, got a uh, separate blog section where they're, the editor for this this blog, this photo blog, goes out and curates just some gorgeous imagery. You know, it's usually around. It's always around some sort of a theme, current events, or, uh, or that sort of thing. But the thing they do this this different, surprisingly, a lot of websites don't do is they sort of acknowledge the fact that nowadays people have big monitors and uh, it's easy to pull down big pictures, um, and so they just serve up these great images, you know, more or less the the a reasonable width of your browser kind of thing. So they're big and they're pretty, and uh, you know, I was just looking through uh, uh, today they're doing India's general election and just great, you know. Great slice of life stuff. Uh, there was uh, a couple of days ago, a uh, big celebration in, in Russia, their their military celebration, and you know, just I think the main thing about it, of course, is just that the the editor for the blog curates really great images from around the world and pulls it together. So it's just uh big picture. Um, it's usually updated a couple times a week, and uh, it's in my regular feed. That's great. Yeah, the Indian the Indian uh, election uh, photos are just fantastic. I'm just looking through them as you're. Uh, yeah, as it's, you're it's it's easy to get lost, and and if you've never been there before, it's really you know just set aside some time because you're going to keep going. <laughs> you know, all the previous <laughs> ones, thing. Oh, I want to look. Wasn't it the one. big big picture blog a couple months ago that had the festival in India, the festival of colors, I believe. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, all the the color powder, you know, like chalk powder type of thing. Oh, that oh, they yeah. use. Those yeah. were yep. beautiful images. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. So um, I guess it's my turn, isn't it? Um, so I, <laughs> this was part of the news, and then I stole it because I, uh, I've been playing with it yesterday, uh, Marcel, uh, or I've been playing, with, I've been looking at it yesterday. Um, so I haven't actually tested this yet, but I, it was it was exciting enough that I actually wanted people to take a look at it uh, because this is something that I have been talking about um, uh, a fair bit of wanting to have for my next camera. And uh, so what this is, is this is an on-one DSLR remote for the iPhone. So uh, there's there are some little caveats at the moment, and we're going to have a link to the you, – you'll see it in action. Uh, we'll put a link in the in the show notes. But essentially what happens is you can pay $10. Uh, it's 199 for the for a light version, but 10 bucks for the full version. And uh, this will connect via Wi-Fi to a computer. Now, you still have to have – right now, you still have to have the iPhone – Connected to a um, to some kind of you know tethered to a computer because it has to have a server software that controls the soft controls the camera uh, because there's no way to tether it yet. 
but what you're able to see is if there's a live view and if there is um, you know, a, a way to preview them, you'll be able to see them on your iPhone wherever you're standing. So anything that's within Wi-Fi distance, you can be sitting there and you can fire the camera, you can make adjustments, you can, um, you can really uh, do a lot uh, with this little on-one uh, remote. Now, they say that once 3.0 comes out, so the new operating system for the iPhone, uh, you'll, you know, they're working on being able to tether the, the camera and the, and to the iPhone directly. Now, the reason that that's exciting is, especially for those of us who like to shoot HDRs, uh, you know, what we're hoping is, what I'm hoping is, is that you're going to be able to program it so that we can hit, you know, design an HDR shooting uh, process so I can just turn the camera, hit the iPhone and have it do what the camera really should do. I just want to say there's no reason why these cameras shouldn't do all this on their own. Um, But for some reason, they haven't found their way into the firmware. And so it'd be great for us to have a great interface. And in some ways, uh, when you see this kind of stuff working, especially when you look at it on on the iPhone, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I really think we're moving towards when we look at what where the iPhone is going, and I know people get tired when we talk about the iPhone, but uh, what you're really looking at is the possibility of this becoming the interface, the controller for a lot of our cameras. Uh, when we're doing, especially when we're doing things that you know are on a tripod, we're not carrying the camera around, and we're doing studio stuff. Uh, instead of waiting for the manufacturer to um, get around to doing, you know the you know, what we want them to do and all the little specialized needs that we have. Uh, and instead of having a laptop that we have to hook it up to, uh, what I'm excited about is the, I, the idea of being able, having a programmable interface um, that looks pretty, that does all the stuff it's supposed to do, that gives us a ton of control that we can Velcro to the back of our camera. Like to me, I, I'd love to get to a point where I could just Velcro it back and just ignore whatever was, <laughs> you know, behind the camera. I mean, wh- whatever was in the interface before that and just control the camera from something that is a little bit more... Um, uh, WYSIWYG uh, and a little it, and have a little more control. Yeah, it it, it started it decouples your your viewfinder or, or you know at least your your view screen from the camera at some level, and so you know, it does, and it gives you and, and theoretically you know all these little things that we wish the camera would do, like I want to shoot fifteen exposures for my HDR, or I want to do a certain kind of time lapse, or I want to do you know there's all kinds of things that um, that we could be instead of asking Canon to do that or Nikon to do that, all I really want them to do is make sure that the SDK allows us to do it. Yep. Yeah. And you these know, guys are smart, too, because, uh, you know, right now it's still a bit of a cumbersome scenario where it still has to be tethered to a laptop that's serving this up. Right. But it's, you know, it's well known that the, you know, version three of the uh, of the iPhone OS is going to allow access to the to the device controller, to the to the port. Uh, so clearly there's going to be the ability to drive the, these cameras directly. And so these guys are kind of getting a, a jump on it because they'll be out there before that's available. And I th- I'd be willing to bet they'll offer an upgrade for the people who have already bought this uh, and, you know, yeah. take over that, own that space. Now, what I really want is, I, I, what, what I'm, I'm rooting for is I just want, a, I want a camera that just has a little slot that I can just push my iPhone, you know, like lock, you know, kind of co- click it in <laughs> so that I can just kind of push it in and, and lock it in and then it just becomes the interface to the camera. Like, just forget all the knobs and whistles, you know, and just let me just let people design it. You know, that would be the ultimate little uh, engineering geeks uh, version of a camera. So I'm just putting it out there. Really curious, you know, I I just pictured what this is going to be like on a movie set where, you know, right now a typical movie set, you've got you've got a few different video feeds uh, of what's being shot, but it tends to be the uh, you know, the entire crew or the important part of the crew kind of cluster around this monitor yeah. trying to see what the shot was just captured and just just imagine in another year or two where everybody on the crew has got their little iPhone out so they can see exactly what's being shot through the camera too and they, they don't have to sort of guess as to what the director's seeing they'll know exactly what he, what he what he's getting in the camera and they can make adjustments accordingly 
Absolutely. Might happen a little sooner than that. (laughs) So it's definitely something we've been thinking a lot about since I was on set in Japan. I was just like, oh, this is insane. So, um, so definitely hoping to, uh, to see something or possibly even do something ourselves in that area. So, uh, we're definitely, uh, the iPhone is just going to be, I think once again, we're, we're saying pay attention to HDR. We told people to pay attention to it years ago and people thought we were crazy. Scott thought we were crazy. And, uh, now, now it's much more normal. Uh, video I think is, is coming. And I think that being able to control a lot of these devices with things like the iPhone, it's just a lot easier to create a great interface, uh, rather than trying to figure out how to do it in hardware. Uh, it's much more flexible. So anyway, so check that out uh, if you are so interested. We'll have links, of course, in the show notes. And now we're going to get to a few questions. Um, so the first question is for uh, for Ron. Um, this is uh, Don Johnson. I wonder if this is the real Don hey. Johnson. <laughs> you know, the, uh, so, I love Miami Vice, man. Yeah, exactly. exactly. He's we, never heard that joke before. I loved you. I loved you in the one with Evan. So anyway, so the... Uh, if anyone actually knows what that is, that'll be very frightening. I used to watch a lot of Miami Vice. So anyway, so Don says, um, I have been looking for some excellent photos from the current NASA mission to repair the Hubble, and I'm wondering if someone could dissect um, the light for me. A good example is in the Boston Globe, big picture. Well, that's a good start. Um, he's, he, um, and he said photos 24, 29, and 30. I would think that direct sunlight would make um, some crazy hard light, but these photos seem to be lit from everywhere. Is the Earth a huge reflector, or what actually um, could get a photographer astronaut to be, you know? Well, anyway, so the question is, is, is where is that light coming Where's from? Where's the light coming from? It's it's, a, it's an interesting question because you know if you look at, especially if you look at uh, some of the moon photography and, and uh, the, the astronauts when they're walking on the moon, you know you've got this directed sunlight and no atmosphere to scatter anything, so your shadows are just black, 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 and you know there's there's no there's no penumbra on them. You know they're not soft at all. It's just this hard light. Uh, and, and everything is extraordinarily dramatic, um, but for this some of this low Earth orbit stuff that the the Hubble servicing mission is doing right now, you're pretty close to the planet. And uh, if you look at these these images, you can see, in fact, in the reflections and in, in the visors and in some of the metallic surfaces that, I mean, the Earth is very big, so it's a big broad light source. You know, you're getting reflected sunlight. Um, you know, coming from the sun, bouncing off the Earth and illuminating the the shuttle and the Hubble. So I think you know, you've, you've basically got an extremely large uh, light source or a bounce card, if you will. Well, and, and the shuttle's white. Yeah, and so you know anything, and and, then, and there's also a lot of very reflective surfaces in there. So you know, I th- I think you've got quite a bit of light bouncing around in the scene, and the, and the net result is that you actually see very few shadows because you've got such a a broad light source coming in. When you kind of see it, when you look at, I know in 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 shot number twenty six, you can really see that there's very little dark on his um, visor. You know, yeah, there's, there's you white see that the, the Earth and the shuttle and everything is sort of filling up his field of view, and consequently, all of those are acting like light sources and and bouncing around. But there's no around. sun. There's no sun, right? I mean, there there is no sun. I don't know where the well. It's hard to say where the sun is in the in the photos, but you know, if if you've got the the Earth fully illuminated in the background behind you, then the sun is probably on the other side. And and uh, yeah, I, I you know, suspect this, it's it's the Earth is really the light source there. Yeah, and, no, that's what I'm saying and, is that it's just a huge. Yeah bounce card that's that's your primary light source really because it's uh, and, and it's, it, it it's also a, these are the photos that they're sending down those are probably you know the, in in when the sun is in direct light it might also be um you know harder the, the images might not be the ones that are worth sending yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful portrait light i'm gonna try it 
the earth <laughs> yeah yeah i i was i was thinking about it i was like you know for, slightly expensive to rent the location but yeah <laughs> it's a planetary but let card. me tell you from 60 miles up it's fantastic yeah. <laughs> so the uh, so I guess I, I have the uh, next question here. This is from Peter Weiss, and he said, I have moved from a PC to a Mac and have ex- have an extensive photo collection of my kids. My workflow has been to tag photos in Adobe Photoshop Elements and use the organizer in it. And, and he said, I would also like to try to write tags. Um, I, I would also try to write tags to the pictures. Since there is no longer an option on the Mac, I am looking for alternatives to tag, write, and write the information um, to the picture metadata. Uh, he said, "I also." Uh, he said, "I also like that PSE uh, Photoshop uh, elements. Um, I could search by tag. The tools of PSE and um, and Five, frankly, have uh, been enough for most of my editing. Uh, I understand Lightroom would be able to do this, but I'm frankly wondering if it's overkill. Uh, I have looked at Kavasoft's Shoebox, which might do the trick. Uh, most of the tagging I do." Uh, is person and event. Uh, location is now being taken care of by geotagging um, uh, to the mix uh, using uh, Huda Geo. My um, uh, current collection is, or Huda Geo. My current collection is about 130,000 images, and I would, I would need to convert them from PSE7, which is a daunting task. Any recommendations would be most appreciated. Well, I can say the, the first thing that I'll say about that is that as far as tagging new pieces, uh, whether you're using Lightroom or Aperture or iPhoto. I mean, your, your new Mac has iPhoto in it, and iPhoto is exceptionally good at, uh, you know, as you look at events, breaking things up into events. You might have to name the events again um, and put those together, but you can, uh, it's going to do that for you automatically. It's just going to look at the dates, and if they're not clustered close enough together, it's going to create a new event. I mean, that's how iPhoto kind of cuts through all of that as it comes through. The other thing about it is, as far as naming people, uh, I, I have actually done a fair bit of tests in iPhoto with the facial recognition, and it is astoundingly good <laughs> it's, it, it, um, to the level of I'm so scared of what the government has if uh, Apple has the little version. Um, I, uh, you know, you, I've identified a handful of photos of my son, and it just went through the entire library and found all of them. You know, and then I found, you know, my wife and it found them all. And then I found my other kids and they found, it just finds them all. And it has them all there and it's, and it, it might screw up every once in a while and you correct it a couple times and it doesn't take very many corrections before. It's pretty well locked on unless it's, unless you really have a, an odd angle or a bad, um, bad image. So uh, it, it's pretty amazing. If, if, if those are the two things you're looking for, a lot of that stuff can be handled pretty quickly in, in uh, Photoshop, in, in, in I, something as simple as iPhoto. Uh, especially in the, the geotagging, of course, will you know a lot of that is being supported within iPhoto. There's great maps and everything else. I mean, I would try it. I would take a, definitely take a look at iPhoto before I look at whether I need anything more complicated um, to uh, to do this with. Uh, I think I'm hoping. Uh, I haven't seen anything or heard anything about Aperture, the next version, but I'm hoping that some of that stuff is going to find its way into Aperture. Um, and That's I, the iLife 09 version too. This is the iLife 09 version, and I'm assuming yeah. that if you just moved, you have that's what you have. Um, but it's yeah, the new iPhoto is uh, astounding, um, and uh, and so it's it's really uh, I'm amazed that you you know get all of what you get with iLife um, for the price, uh, which is often free. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, there so, are still machines uh, in retail right now that don't have the iLife 09 in the box, and I actually personally have to find out what the upgrade policy is on that because. My dad's new iMac that just came fresh out of the box yesterday did not have the 09 kit in it. Interesting. 
Interesting. So, well, you have to be careful if, if you're ordering from Apple or ordering from someone else. Uh, I yeah, have this ordered was Best Buy. So yeah, I don't do that anymore. I have to admit that uh, this is not Mac Break Weekly, so I'll, I'll keep it quick. But uh, I have tried a- ordering from Mac Mall and Amazon. Um, you know, thinking I'm going to get a better deal or I'm going to get a free printer or whatever. And I have found that it's not worth it. Uh, I have gotten older versions of software, older versions of hardware uh, w- that aren't clearly marked uh, within the order process, and um, and I've just stopped. Uh, when we order uh, software, or well, we, well, not when it's software, but when we order hardware, uh, Apple hardware, we order it from Apple.com or we go to the Apple Store, um, and it's just because. Uh, it is just too much trouble to try to deal with these third-party um, resellers, and we don't get what we expect. Uh, and we've had so we buy a lot of Macs, <laughs> and so we we we've tried most of the iterations of this, and uh, it has just turned out badly um, often enough. Uh, that, um, you know, I ordered two because I just knew that they'd be delivered for free because I'm Amazon Prime from Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. and and as a as a, by the way as a um, uh, due diligence, uh, you know, Ron works. At Amazon, but not in the shipping department or, or the Mac department. That's and, true. Uh, but he's not going to say anything about it while I talk. Um, and uh, But, you know, they came and it was old versions of the operating system, which then I then had to uh, go out and buy the new version of the operating system to upgrade it. And, uh, you know, it's just it was not worth it. So and, and, and I say that as someone who probably spends you know, $1,000, $1,500 a month on Amazon. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, it, it's not that I don't buy stuff from Amazon, um, but I don't buy uh, Macs from Amazon. So, um, so uh, anyway, so that's, uh, to get back to the question, I think that I would look at iPhoto for that. Um, there are some tools, and I have to admit that I'm not uh, privy to some of the, I mean, I haven't had to deal with this, but I know some of the guys here have been doing some research on metadata uh, manipulating software, where, which will kind of try to rebuild that for you. You can, you know, add a lot of the metadata in either iPhoto or Aperture or Lightroom. I'm not familiar with Cavasoft, so um, I'm not sure, you know, how that would work. But a lot of these will let you uh, edit that metadata. Uh, if the metadata is not in the photos right now, you're going to have a little bit of, um, you know, work to try to, um, you know, uh, push that through. I, what I, the other thing that I haven't done is try to try to do a Photoshop uh, elements export or anything that's going to get it out into some format where it binds the the information you've already put in. And that's the that's the painful part of it, and you definitely want to be looking for something that is putting data into the actual images, um, so that it you know follows them around. So anyway, uh, next question is for Aaron. It said this is from uh, Timothy Powell, and um, Timothy says I calibrate my iMac 20 inch with an X-Rite and use Photoshop Lightroom 2 to work on my photos. Uh, when sending the files to the photo lab, how do I get um, the print to match the screen. The ICC profile should be embedded into the file sent to the lab. The monitor profile, uh, or, or what ICC profile should be sent to the monitor of the lab? The monitor profile or the downloaded one from the lab? How does color management work in this regard? I can uh, certainly tell you my experience with that. Um, in fact, I'm in the midst of it right now. The event shooting that I told you about from last week and this week are actually one of my busiest times of the year for uh, photos that I shoot that are sold online through um, through Exposure Manager. Um, 
And the way the exposure manager system works, and I, and I suspect this is going to be true of a lot of other systems, most labs I've ever dealt with um, want sRGB to be the uh, profile that's embedded in the image. And that seems to be fairly standard uh, because a lot of the labs use the Fuji crystal printers, I believe, um, and some other models. But the, the standard for the most part, and while sRGB may be kind of the lowest common denominator versus things like Adobe RGB, um, that is what most systems that do printing are profiled on. Uh, the ICC profile that your lab may provide is a preview profile that you use for your display. So the configuration I've always had in the past, and this is with Photoshop in this case, um, and I have to look and check see how I would implement it with Lightroom as well. But um, that profile is used for previewing the image on my screen supposedly as close to the printer's output as possible. The purpose being that I bring in an image and make adjustments to it. If I then either preview it with that profile or I do my adjustment work within that profile, I'm adjusting it on my screen with a tonality that's supposed to be as close as possible to what the final print's going to look like. Now you still submit the image with the sRGB profile in it. Um, embedded in the image. So don't go putting the lab's profile for your display into that image as the color profile. Output it as a regular, you know, high resolution JPEG, no compression if possible, or, you know, highest quality, and with the sRGB profile embedded in it. But use that ICC profile that your lab provides you uh, in color previewing mode in Photoshop. And when you flip that switch essentially in Photoshop, you will probably see a subtle change in color or hopefully just subtle, <laughs> change in color to the image on your screen and make your adjustments there so that it looks on your screen about like the way you want it. Then you can go back to your normal view, but then export it with an sRGB profile embedded in it. Great. Last question is for Steve. Um, this is a uh, uh, from Bill Billy Murphy. Uh, he said, I, uh, recently, I was recently taking pictures of the Dallas skyline uh, late one evening, and I was having difficulty finding the right camera settings to capture a good picture with a dark sky and highlight reflections off the glass buildings. Um, Steve, do you have any ideas of, of how he might be able to approach that? Uh, sure. Well, first thing, he didn't mention a tripod, but if you want a sharp image, uh, chances are uh, in, in low light like that, uh, you want a tripod so you can ramp down your ISO. There's no real reason to have a a high ISO um, and and get maximum quality, but uh, you know the other thing too is you know when your camera's meter is going to read the scene, it's going to see a lot of dark and tend to overexpose. So depending where he was at, if he was on manual or on automatic, you're going to have to purposely underexpose, likely two stops, sometimes even more, uh, to get the correct exposure. But most importantly, I would suggest to him or anybody that wants to do those kinds of night skyline shots that, uh, you know, be there around dusk when the uh, the difference between the highlights and the shadows isn't as great. It's still going to look like night, but you'll get a lot more subtle detail and shadows. And understand if you're shooting later than that, uh, you know, there's a limit of what you're going to be able to record uh, short of getting into some HDR. But even then, you know, if, if, there's, if there's black, you know, there's not much you can do to, to add detail if there's no light on, on the part of the scene. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thanks a lot. And uh, if, you, if, if you have a question, if you're listen, out there listening and you have a question, you'd like us to uh, uh, take a look at it, uh, go to twiplog.com and you'll see a place where you can uh, uh, submit questions. Make sure to fill out everything there. We need to know your name. If you have a, if you have a name that people have a hard time pronouncing, uh, definitely let us know how to pronounce it. Uh, and, um, and then make sure to um, you know, ask a question. Keep it, uh, there's some instructions there, but keep it 
fairly succinct, um, and uh, and we'll try to get to it to the show. We get a lot more than we can actually answer, but we love getting these questions. So please, if, if you've got something burning, a lot of times what happens is if you send in a photo, a question, we may not use yours specifically, but if we see six photos that are about a certain area, we'll pick one of those ones. Because, so you're kind of voting for the kind of things you'd like us to answer uh, as well. So uh, definitely uh, send questions, twiplog.com. So, um, uh, Aaron, do we know what the interview is for next week? Um, I don't believe we do. I know it's recorded. I have to check with Fred. It's recorded, and (laughs) uh, we have have to look at Fred. It's a Fred question. So uh, we will have an interview next week. And Fred uh, is on top of our interviews, so... I, I don't always know necessarily on this Friday what next Friday's will be. Perfect. So, um, so Fred, uh, Fred will be uh, doing the interview for for next week's, and 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 Frederick will be back uh, next week to uh, to helm. I hope every. I hope uh, I feel a little rusty. It was a little. Uh, it's very uncomfortable uh, being in. You were great. The you were great. Thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Hey, Steve. Where can people find you? Uh, SteveSimonPhoto.com. I'm going to be doing a workshop at the main workshops in late August. So uh, off my website, you'll be able to see it. And, of course, Twitter slash Steve Simon. Great. And, uh, Ron, where can people find you? Uh, easiest things just on the Twitters. Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. I actually own Ron Brinkman with one N as well, and I occasionally get on there and chastise people who decided to follow that person instead of me. <laughs> I, would, I would hate to be the Ron Brinkman with one N. And he's got to exist, right? He's out there. Probably somewhere. <laughs> They're like, why? He doesn't talk about photography but at I all. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, and Aaron, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at my blog, which I will update again someday, uh, halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S.com. Um, but more active on Twitter than anywhere else, and I'm halfpress on there as well. All right. Until uh, next week, take that lens cap off, get out there, and start shooting.